And let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 53. We're obviously in a series in Isaiah. Each and every week we're beholding our Redeemer. And today we're going to behold our Redeemer in his suffering. One of my historical heroes, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said that Isaiah 53 is the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. And it is. If you could put the whole Bible into one chapter, I think it would probably be this one, these 12 verses that we have before us in Isaiah 53. And it is the gospel in very essence. Kyle Yates, professor of Old Testament theology at Southern Seminary, he says this about this wonderful chapter. He says, Isaiah 53 is the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. A higher acclaim could not be more given to this chapter, I believe. And it's actually a man called Franz Dalich, a German scholar, that unpacks that some more as to why it really is the Mount Everest. He says, this chapter looks as if it has been written beneath the cross, upon Golgotha itself. That's why it's the Mount Everest. Because 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, Isaiah prophesies about him in great detail. 700 years before Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary and into the broken stable itself, Isaiah points to him. And so we are on holy ground this morning. Whenever we survey Calvary, we're always on holy ground. And let's read together Isaiah 53. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion from the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, as we survey Isaiah 53, how sweet the sound of saving grace is. Lord, 700 years before your servant was sent by you to Calvary, Isaiah tells us about him. Our Lord, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning? Would we behold you as we ascend this Mount Everest of prophecies? And would we see you? And would it melt our hearts away? In Jesus' precious name, amen. One of the books that we used to read our children a number of years ago, I think Lydia wasn't so much involved, but Josh and Amy certainly were, and was we bought the Chronicles of Narnia series. And we bought them a really baby-centered version. It just had lots of pictures. And I remember when I used to come home from work at different times, and they would want me to read it there and then, and we would try and save it before they went to bed. And we'd actually go to Josh's room. And so Lydia would often go to bed. But Josh and Amy, we would sit on Josh's bed and we'd start to unfold the pages. And every night they just wanted the same story again because they just loved Narnia. And for those of you who have, may have read it as adults, you will understand why these books, the Narnia books, hold such excitement. Because ultimately they point us to Jesus. Aslan is always portrayed as Jesus. That's the way C.S. Lewis wrote it. And so you don't have to read the books long to be mesmerized by them. And the following is a brief synopsis of the opening book, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And this writer in their synopsis says this about this first book. In the first of the Chronicles of Narnia, young children go through the back of a wardrobe and enter into a whole new world, the world of Narnia. But that world is enslaved under the spell of a witch. It is the middle of winter, and as the book says, it is always winter and yet never Christmas. But rumor has it that Aslan, the great king from far beyond, is coming, and spring is beginning to burst forth. Aslan finally does come, but one of the children betrays the group for a piece of Turkish delight and comes under the dominion of the witch. Aslan, to free the boy, gives himself to the witch, who gleefully kills Aslan on a great stone table. Of course, the children are horrified as they see their beloved Aslan being killed. But when they go back the next day to find the body, it is gone. They approach the hill and see the altar where Aslan was slaughtered, and they're mystified and confused because all they see is that there is a big crack in the stone. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. 
all colors and shadows were changed. And for a moment, they couldn't see the most important thing. And then they did. The stone table was indeed broken into two pieces from end to end, but there was no Asda. Oh, cried the two girls rushing to the table. It's just too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, cried a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They turned around and there, shining larger than they had ever seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan. Oh, Aslan, cried both of the children, staring up at him as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, not a, said Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't quite bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look it? he says. Oh, you're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him in kisses. And then Susan asked, as they sat with Aslan, but what does it all mean? Aslan, what does it all mean? But what does it all mean, Aslan? You know, there's no more important question that Susan could have asked Aslan in this moment. Aslan, in light of all you've done, in light of the sacrifice we saw last night, in light of the stone table now broken into two, in light of Aslan that you are now alive, Aslan, what does it all mean? And there is no greater question that we can ask the Savior that Aslan always pointed to. Lord, as we survey Calvary, what does it all mean? Well, one thing that I love about this text, Isaiah 53, the thing that makes it, I think, the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy, is that Isaiah explains to us in great detail what it all means. What his suffering really meant. Derek Tidball, a British theologian, in his book, The Message of the Cross, says, here then in Isaiah 53 is one of the great peaks of the Old Testament's revelation of God. For from this vantage point, we can obtain a clear view of his work on the far-off summit of Calvary and gain a definitive perspective on its meaning. Here in Isaiah 53, we get to see what it all means. And if you're here today as an unbeliever, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm thrilled you're here. I'm so grateful that you'd be with us this morning and a part of us this morning. It's my hope that as we examine Isaiah 53 together and as we look out on Calvary, that you may see Jesus for who he really is and that you may discern what it all means. 
that you may come face to face with the living Christ, one who died in your place. And as you examine what it all means, you may repent of your sin, put your faith in him and know him as Lord and Savior of your life. A situation that changes everything in your life. And if you're a believer this morning, it is my hope that this would refresh you, that this would comfort you, that this indeed would refocus you. And that you may realize afresh, this is what it all means. This is why Christ and Him crucified needs to be the motivational force in all of my life. Because this is what it all means. And so I have three points this morning that will help us unpack what it all means. Number one, the appearance. Number two, the reality. And number three, the response. And so let us begin, number one, with the appearance, verses one through three. Alec Motias, in his commentary, a wonderful commentary on Isaiah, if you want to get a commentary on Isaiah, he describes verses one through three this way. This is his heading of verses one through three. He says, it is suffering observed and misunderstood. I think he's right. They see the suffering, but they misunderstand the suffering. Look with me at verses two. And verses 3 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Despised, rejected, esteemed not. Isaiah is pointing us unashamedly and deliberately to Jesus at this point. One to come, the king, the suffering servant that was to come. As you examine the Gospels and then you get to the book of Acts, there are numerous occasions, particularly in the Gospels, when Jesus refers to Isaiah 53 and explains to them, this was me. Isaiah was prophesying about me. And as Isaiah starts this whole premise, he explains to us all that Jesus was despised and rejected and esteemed not. You know, you would have expected that when Jesus comes to the earth as God incarnate, that people would be clamming over each other to see him, to encounter him, to revel in him. And it Isaiah explains to us that what actually happened is when he arrives, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. And as he grew up, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he was unesteemed. What you would assume would happen when Jesus arrived didn't happen at all. Why? Well, because by human standards, Jesus was totally unimpressive. By human standards, no one was interested in Jesus. There wasn't anything stand out about him. And so to merely observe Jesus according to human wisdom, apart from divine illumination, apart from God breaking in on our lives and regenerating us, he appears completely unimpressive. And that's exactly what Isaiah tells us about 700 years before Jesus is, is even born. His unimpressive nature. 
In the first part of verse 2, then he tells us about his birth and background being unimpressive. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He's referring there to the background of the Saviour and the birth of the Saviour. And if you read it in context as you examine the New Testament, you can hear in this verse what was going to be said of him 700 years on. Even in the midst of all his miracles and all that he was doing and all that he said he was, the cry of the crowd is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is this not the carpenter's son? This can't be the king we're waiting for. Is this all he is? This guy was born in Nazareth. We even have to say Nazareth in Galilee because the place is the size of a soccer field. People barely know where Nazareth is. Can anybody come good, good out of there? Isn't, isn't this just Joseph's son? And in the second part of the verse, he explains too that the appearance of the Savior was unimpressive too. For he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. The Savior wasn't striking or attractive or handsome. If you were to see a photo of him next to the 12 disciples, you would not be able to tell which one he was. He just looked like a guy. Every other Palestinian Jewish guy. He was regular and unimpressive. And the result of that, the result of his unimpressive nature, is he was despised and rejected by men. As people looked on, 700 years on, from this prophecy at the Savior, their cry was, this can't be him. This guy isn't that impressive. He's just the carpenter's son. This cannot be the one in any way that we are waiting for. And they esteemed him not. And Isaiah, if you read the text closely, knew all along that that was going to happen. Look at verse 1. He says, who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? His whole premise is, who's going to believe this? As we start to preach to the children and the children's children and the children's children after them, who's going to believe that this really is the king to come? Because he's unimpressive. You see, to really understand What's going on here? To really understand, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the original recipients of this. In chapters 1 through 39, as we know now, as we're getting used to Isaiah, the primary premise of the book is judgment. It's the judgment of God. Israel and Judah are rejecting God. God has warned them. They refuse to respond to the Lord. And as a consequence of their sin, Judah gets really destroyed and then a remnant is taken to Babylon. And they are in captivity in Babylon. The whole structure of the book is one of judgment to come. But then in chapter 40, starting in chapter 40 through to the end of the book, there is then a promise of deliverance. And so Isaiah 40, we read, Comfort, comfort is the first two words. God is now coming after them and explaining to them, yes, judgment is real, you have been judged, but comfort, comfort my people. I'm coming after you. I'm going to deliver you. And one of the key parts then of his promise of his deliverance was a king to come. One who would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. 
And so as they stand and sit in chains in Babylon, they are comforted by this prophecy, realizing one will come. A king will come who will be a wonderful counselor and a prince of peace. And in their mind at that point, what they hear is one will come who will be a mighty warrior king. Surely he will arrive and he will just lay out our enemies before us. He will destroy them and he will march us back and our nation will be great again. They are expecting a mighty warrior king. And so they read then Isaiah 53. And what they would have been thinking is, who's this guy? This can't be him. We're expecting a warrior king. This guy? No form of majesty that we should look at him? doesn't sound like the one to us. Well, Isaiah knew that in time, the remnant themselves would understand who is to come. That they would grasp the suffering servant that that God was going to send. And so they start to preach it to the next generation and the generation and the generation after that. God restores them to Israel itself. And they start to preach to the generations after them. But what Isaiah is saying here is, you know what? Even though we will do that, even though you will grasp this and believe this, who will believe what they've heard from us? And who, as the years go on, will the arm of the Lord be revealed to? He's prophesying of a future day of what is going to happen when the king actually does indeed come. And 700 years on, that's exactly what happens. The king Jesus does come. And what happens is he was rejected and refused and esteemed not. And my friends, as I thought about it this week, I realized that's still the same today, is it not? You tell your friends about Jesus. Do they esteem him? I think not. Do they reject him? Yeah. That's why this room isn't filled with every individual as they approach Jesus Christ. Because he's rejected and refused and esteemed not. It is still happening today. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, the Apostle Paul in preaching to the Corinthians after Jesus Christ has died and risen again, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Listen. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul is aware. If we preach Christ and Him crucified, which we must, as we brandish the gospel and we take it forward, we must do this but it's going to be folly to them. They're not going to be impressed with this. Because Jesus does in part appear unimpressive. And if all people look through then is their own human wisdom, without divine illumination, he'll just seem like a liar or a lunatic before their eyes. They won't bow the knee and respond. See, Isaiah in some ways seems to recognize that regeneration is going to be important. 
That's why he uses the word, I believe, revealed in that very first verse. He's aware that who is God going to reveal himself to? And yet in grace, from verse 4 through to the end of 12, he nonetheless helps us see what we will see if God in his grace does reveal himself to us. And let's look at that then. Number two, the reality. What is the reality of what really took place at Calvary, which is being prophesied here? What is the reality of what it all means? And it's here in these verses that we do, I think, ascend Everest and get an incredible view of Calvary. What does it all mean? Well, it means three things. I think, firstly, under the premise of the reality. Firstly, it means he suffered as our sin bearer. He may have, to the human eye, looked unimpressive. He may have looked to the human eye as if he was just smitten by God, that God was just doing something to him, and it had nothing to do with us at all. But Isaiah slows us down and explains, no, no, your faces are in the scene here. He suffered as our sin bearer. Look with me at verse 4 through 6. For surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now at least ten times in those three verses we come face to face with the personal pronouns of our, we and us. What, what does it relate to? What are ours? Well, griefs, sorrows, transgressions, iniquities, gone astray, his own way. That's the divine reality, my friends, of what we bring to the party. You want to know what you bring to your salvation? We've just read about it. Iniquities, transgressions, sorrows, sins. This is the part we play in the suffering of the Savior. And it's so important we grasp that because unless we see our face in Isaiah 53, the full force of Calvary will never truly affect us. And yet we all like to think that we're not involved, don't we? We just listen to this somewhat amusing illustration a moment. It says, In late August 1992, Hurricane Andrew ripped through southern Florida, leveling many homes and buildings that had stood in its path. In the quiet aftermath, a young mother stepped out onto her porch to survey the damage with her little six-year-old boy named Timmy. The young woman looked at the community that used to be, amazed at the rubble that had replaced so many homes, and then she began to wonder... What could be going through the mind of this young child seeing such severe destruction? Timmy saw his mother looking down at him and he got nervous. So before she could even say a word, he piped up and simply said this, I didn't do it. 
You know, no one teaches a six-year-old to say that. But it's what they all say, eh? You, I think one of the first words that our kids learned were mine. And then after that, it was him. You know, because it's just the nature of who we are. This is mine, and yes, he sucks, and it was his fault. It's what we all do. And it's not just six-year-olds that do that, is it? We do it as adults as well. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was playing, playing in my soccer team. We had one of our guys sent off for headbutting a guy. I play for a lovely team. We're known as the Friendly Club. Seriously, we have Friendly Club written on our backs. But we had to have a guy that got sent off for headbutting a guy. Um, and when we got back into the changing rooms, he was still quite cross about what had taken place. And it was very interesting because it went from, I just headbutted the guy, which we all saw, to, oh, I just retaliated. Think, oh, right. And then it became, I'm not even sure it was a headbutt. It was just like a sort of flick. And then within about 10 minutes, it wasn't even a flick. It was a snuggle in. I was just snuggling in. And you think, mate, and you just think, this is hilarious. So it's somebody else's fault, and now it's almost a cuddle. It's a bit of bromance going on. And you think, we're all like this. Now and again, we recognize things we do, but the best thing we can do and the best piece of arsenal that we have is it must be their fault. It must be something they're doing that is causing this. And I think we do do that when it comes to Calvary. We detach ourselves somehow and go, I didn't do it. And yet Isaiah is simply unwilling to let us do that. Isaiah looks it in his eye and says, oh, you're involved. As one scholar writes, and I just love this, he says, verse 6 in particular does not allow the fading of history to occur. And his whole point was, if you examine verse 6 correctly, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. If you examine it closely, you will see your face in it. Because he's referring at this point to mankind. Everybody's left the Savior. Everybody's had enough of him. Our faces are in the scene. And it's when we see them that then we realize he suffered as our sin bearer. He suffered for me. He suffered for you. See, what we hear is in this verse is the language of substitution. He has borne our griefs carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. For with his stripes, we are healed. And the Lord laid on him The iniquity of us all. My friends, it is the divine language of substitution. And does it not stir your soul afresh to see it? What does it all mean? It means he died in your place. He was there instead of you. You deserved the griefs. You deserve the sorrows. He took it. 
On July the 31st, 1941, a prisoner escaped from Auschwitz concentration camp. In reprisal, the Nazis took 10 men and said these 10 men would die in an underground bunker of starvation. One of the men who was selected, the ninth man, was named Francis Gaginistic. This man, as he was called, cried out, My poor wife and children. And at that moment, a small and impressive man, a 47-year-old Pole with small wire-framed glasses, stepped forward and said, I am a Catholic priest. I don't have a family. May I die instead of this man? His offer was accepted. And his name was Maximilian Kolb. And he was sent down into that bunker with the other men. He was a remarkable man. He got them all praying and singing. And the atmosphere in that bunker was like a church. In the end, they gave him a lethal injection to kill him. On October the 10th, 1982, in St. Peter's Square in Rome, Maximilian Kolb's death was put in its proper perspective. Present in the crowd that day of 150,000 people was Francis Gaginistic, together with his wife and his children and his children's children. The many had been saved by the one's self-sacrificial and substitutionary death. And the Pope described his death like this, a victory like that of our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, that man laid his life down for an ally. And it is then like the death of the Savior. And yet it is also dislike the death. Because in effect, if we played out the illustration properly, Jesus would be dying instead of the Nazis. He died for his enemies. He died for a people that didn't esteem him. He died for a people that were spitting on him and mocking him. He died for a people that didn't recognize him, that just thought it was hilarious. Surely this is the carpenter's son. This is a joke. What is he doing? Surely he's just been smitten by God. What a loser. And yet he died as a sin bearer for you and me. Isn't that incredible? That's not all it means. Verses 7 through 9 then help us see that number 2, he suffered in innocence. He not only died as our sin bearer, he suffered in innocence. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken by the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. My friends, the death of Jesus Christ was not a capitulation to weakness. He simply chose not to fight back. That's what it means when you read the words, you know, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He could have in the moment just called down the angels to release him from the cross. 
when people were mocking around him, saying, if you're really God, call down the heavenlies. The irony is he could have done. And yet because he was our sin bearer, like a lamb to the slaughter, he stayed silent. Because he's aware this is what it always had to be. I came as their substitute. It wasn't a capitulation to weakness. He simply chose not to fight back. And yet in all reality, the situation of the death of Jesus Christ was the greatest miscarriage of justice that has ever been seen in our world and ever will be. Why? Because as it says in verse 9, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was the sinless one. He was the only one who had ever lived that deserved not to die. He was the only one that ever lived that deserves not to be a man of sorrows or acquainted with grief. He had no iniquities. And yet he died in innocence. For you and for me. My friends, herein lies the love of the Son for you. Isn't it incredible? If you've ever wondered how Jesus feels about you, survey Isaiah 53. And yet what I find astounding about this text is that we see not only the love of the Son in it, we see the love of the Father too in verse 10. See, the love of the Savior, I think, in this text is immediately obvious, and yet the Father's love can be all too easily missed, all too easily overlooked, and yet to do that would be a grave mistake. Because look at what the Father's love is for you. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You know, as a father of three children who bring their dad great joy, as a father, I, I don't enjoy or like seeing my children suffer. And for all of those of you that are parents, I'm sure you can relate to that. You don't want to see your children suffer in any way. And so when they're going through difficulties, when they're in hospital, when they're really sick, it, it breaks your heart. When they're walking around the playground and you're sitting outside just to check on how they're doing and you notice they're over at the fence crying because they have no friends, those things break your heart as a parent, don't they? They're the difficulties that you go through. When you see them getting older and you see them going through relational difficulties and they want to fit in but they don't feel they do, as a father, as a mother, these things affect you. And the truth is you don't have to be a parent to understand that. You can see it in the parent's eyes and anybody who relates to children in any way can quickly understand how heartbreaking it is to see them suffer. Well, my friends, the father's love for his son was far greater than anything we have ever imagined or experienced ourselves. Our, sin is, our love is always tainted with sin. We are by nature evil, but God is not evil. God is good. 
God enjoyed perfect unity with His Son before the foundation of the earth. He enjoyed love with His Son that we can barely even imagine. It was a loving, joyful, peaceful, glorious household in the heavenly realms. So how then does God the Father feel about you? I tell you how He feels about you. He so loves you that it was the will of the Father... To crush the Son. To put Him to grief for you. Isn't that incredible? It's staggering truth. So my friends, if you are ever wondering or tempted to doubt that God really loves you, I want to encourage you in that moment Ascend Everest in Isaiah 53 and take a look. See, I think it is all too cheap to say, oh, God is love. I think, oh, that's jolly nice. God is love. Great. Without going, God is love. And here it is. This is love. That God crushed his son for you. And the Son freely came out of love. Also, yes, God is love. But give it context. Because that changes everything. What does it all mean? Well, it means that he suffered as our sin bearer. He suffered in innocence. And the third point under the reality is though he was crushed, he was victorious. And I love this. Isaiah points us to the end game. He points us to what Jesus Christ would achieve on Calvary. Check out verse 12. He says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, this is the deliberate imagery of a victorious king sharing his spoils with his allies. That is what it's talking about. It's talking about when a victorious king conquers the task that he has been given and all the spoils that come with it, he can now share with his allies. It is a pointer to the moment at Calvary when Jesus says, It is finished. What is finished? Everything he came to do. Everything he wanted to do. Everything he was sent by the Father to do. For when Jesus Christ on the cross declared as the King, it is finished. All the wrath of God which you and I deserved, all of the sorrows, all of the transgressions, all of the iniquities that brought about the wrath of God, Jesus Christ in that moment had drank them to the full. And so he cries, it is finished, it is done, it is the cry of victory. He then commits his soul to the Father, the job is done. And all the way through scripture he explains that when that is done, it will be possible for anybody who puts their faith in me to be forgiven of their sin, to be reconciled to the Father, 
to be adopted into the very family of God, to be assured that heaven is going to be your home? What is that? I'll tell you what that is. That is the spoils of the king that is pointed to here 700 years before Jesus arrives in Isaiah 53, verse 12. How great is that? 700 years before he even arrives, he explains what he's going to look like, how people are going to respond, what he will do, and then he explains, oh, but he will win. He will finish the job that he has been sent for. He will complete the task. He will be victorious. And then in that moment, he will divide the portion with the many. He will divide the spoils of his victory. Yes. Yes, this is great. Jesus has done it all. He's paid the price in full. It is all complete. 700 years before Jesus arrives, we see a picture of his death and we see his victory. It is done. And so what does it all mean, Susan asked. Aslan, what what was this? Well, friends, in a sentence, I put to you what it all means is this. What it all means is that salvation, full and complete, can now be ours through the sufferings of Jesus Christ alone. That's what it all means. It means that salvation, full and complete, can now be ours through the sufferings of Jesus Christ alone. And so number three, in closing, by conclusion, the response. How are we meant to respond? What are the claims of this text on our lives? Well, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you. The claim of this text on your life is, I believe, a call to faith. And Jesus Christ has made it possible for you to receive the spoils of heaven. The point of Scripture all the way through Start, particularly starting in Isaiah verses 1 through 39, is the promise of judgment, the promise of consequence for our sin. The, the storyline of Scripture is that God made us, He formed us, He made us to delight in Him, to worship Him, to enjoy Him, to spend time in His peace and His presence. But the storyline of Scripture is that all we like sheep have gone astray. Everybody's turned to their own way. Nobody's interested. Nobody is interested in God in their human vision. Because of that, judgment awaits all of us. The consequences of sin are death. The consequences of sin, if you want to know what they are, you see them here in verses 4, 5, and 6. Sorrows, afflictions, painful iniquities. And yet Jesus Christ was sent on the greatest rescue mission ever told because he was sent on a mission by God the Father, at just the right time God sent the Son, and it was his will to crush him at the right time. Why? Well, so that through faith in Jesus, he would then take your place at Calvary for your punishment. And you would go free. He would die the death that you were made for as a consequence for your sin. And he would gift you then with the spoils of his victory. Is that not scandalous grace? But it's true. Jesus Christ himself then said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Friends, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to urge you then, believe in him today. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and all that this Bible speaks of will be true for you. You will receive in that moment the spoils of heaven. You'll be forgiven of your sin, washed clean. Reconciled to God the Father for the first time. Adopted into his family. Not just held off at a distance, but God will say, now I want you near me. Come, I want you to be part of my family. And heaven will be your home. Though you're here today and you are a believer, which is most of you, I want to encourage you, the claim of this text, I believe, is simply this. It is a call to worship. How can we not stay silent? How can we stay silent when we realize Jesus Christ came to die for our sins? How can we not respond with abandon? How can we not realizing that my life has been bought with a price? This is the price. How can we not then just say, Lord, compelled by this, identified by this, having received the effects of this, how can we not respond, Lord, you can have it all. In life, in death, and in song. Now there is one song that you see in Scripture numerous times. It is the song of the heavenly realms. And it is the song that simply says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. My friends, with that song in response to this chapter be the defining song of our lives in voice and in deed. Because make no mistake, Jesus has indeed paid it all. Let's pray. Lord, how can we thank you enough for your scriptures? Lord, it astounds us and gives us great confidence and faith to understand that 700 years before your son even appeared into our world, we see here a prophecy of him, appointed to him in great detail. And we see in this prophecy what it all means. Lord, I do pray then today that we would be and have been refreshed by what it all means. We would be affected and encouraged to the very core of who we are. And I do pray that it would refocus our gaze. Because what it all means is that you died as our sin bearer. My sin bearer. And you did this in complete innocence. And yet, although you were crushed, you were indeed victorious. So Lord, as we now close in song, would you receive all praise? You are worthy of our entire lives. You are worthy of it all. And when worthy then is the Lamb who was slain, be the defining song of our lives as we give it all to you. In Jesus' precious name.
Amen.